All right, thank you guys. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. I feel like I need to introduce myself to everyone. My name is Mike, and I work here. And I have been on sabbatical, and it's been glorious. Um, but I have missed you, most of you. Um, and I am really, really glad to be back. It's just really, really sweet. Um, and I'm really glad to be back and be able to finish out this sermon series through the Proverbs because I, I really love the Proverbs. And I, I love them because they are just so practical. They're not heady theology and doctrine. They're not the kind of thing that, that in any way should cause us to puff up with knowledge. They are practical, real life. They are so incredibly valuable to us if we will receive them as something of value. Uh, for part of my sabbatical, I, I did a silent retreat at a monastery in Big Sur where I wasn't allowed to talk. And uh, yeah, I, I know, you're, you're wishing I would employ a little more of that in my sermons. But uh, I... I learned something. I've learned something over my whole sabbatical that I'm more of an introvert than I thought I was. At the silent retreat, I learned I'm not that much of an introvert. I went a little bit nuts. But on my retreat, July 25th was one of my days. I read this in the Proverbs on that day. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And that is what God has given us in the Proverbs. Apples of gold in a setting of silver. I think about the, the Proverbs so much like I think about um, Stephanie and I, and, and I know many other parents, our attempt to parent and lead my kids. There are things over the years that Stephanie and I have learned either through just our own experience or things that we've learned through, from God through his word and things that we um, attempt to pass on to our kids. Some things we've learned through the hard ways, and, and we want our kids to hear us. We want to spare our kids sometimes some of the pain of our own bad decisions. We, we know and we feel like that, that our job as parents is to, to lead our kids that way, and I feel that, that way about the Proverbs to us. But sometimes when we try to lead our kids that way, they scoff at us as if what we're saying couldn't possibly um, really be wise, like we don't know what we're talking about, or that we can't we can't expect them to think that that would actually apply to their life. Or they'll just simply not want to do what we challenge them to do. Recently, one of my kids said to Stephanie and me, she's, oh, I wasn't going to say she, so you wouldn't know. Now you narrowed it down to two. <laughs> they, it, said, <laughs> said, I wish I would have listened to you three years ago when you told me to blank. And I think I heard angels singing. <laughs> it was amazing. But you know what, our kids and, and their rejection of our wisdom is no different than my own rejection of my kids. I mean, my own rejection of my parents' wisdom. Even as an adult, I think, when I was in my 20s, my parents challenged me with wisdom that I just sort of scoffed at, I didn't listen to. Today, I wish I had listened to that wisdom because they were right. But we can't force our kids to trust us that we know what we're talking about. We can't force our kids to trust us that we have their best interests in mind and that what we're saying will be good. And God doesn't force us to listen to him either. 
And I often imagine, as I just think back on this, the decisions I've made in my life, as I watch other people making these foolish decisions, I imagine God just shaking his head as he listens to our various excuses about why his wisdom just doesn't work for us. That's what the Proverbs are. They are parental wisdom for us. They are perfect parental wisdom. Each one of us is being parented through the Proverbs, given vital, vital, important pieces of wisdom that if we will listen and we will do the things that God challenges us and calls us to do, that we will find this amazing joy, we will find peace, and then we will find wisdom for us to share with other people. The Proverbs and, and the wisdom of God are not rules to restrict us. They are jewels to enrich us. And they are practices to free us. They are apples of gold, silver in a setting of gold. Let's pray and let's jump into Pro Proverbs 5. God, I'm so grateful for these Proverbs. I'm so grateful that you saw fit. I just, when I see your whole of your word, I'm, I'm so amazed and thankful that you gave it to us. And God, we confess that sometimes we are, we are like foolish children before you, our perfect father, and we, we hear your wisdom for us and we choose to turn away from it. Or we think it can't possibly apply to us in our situation. God, I pray this morning that you would open and you would soften our hearts to hear this important warning that you give us today in Proverbs 5. God, I pray that we would see you as a holy, trustworthy father. As it says in Psalms, that we would see that you are for us and that everything you give us is for our good. We love you. Pray that you would be made much of in this message this morning and pray, God, that what I say from this stage would be pleasing to you and that it would reflect your heart. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Proverbs 5. If you will turn there, we're going to read the whole proverb this morning. Proverbs is right in the middle of your Bible, right after Psalms. You probably know that by now, but if you don't, you know what? Just flip around till you find it. Pretty much in the middle, right after Psalms. Uh, use a pew Bible if you don't have your own Bible. And if you don't have your own Bible, take that pew Bible home with you. It is... Um, our gift to you. I'm going to read this proverb, read it along with me. And as you read it, I want you to think about it as counsel from a father who loves you, a counsel from a father who delights in parenting you. Let's read this together. Proverbs 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan. 
when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your streams be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let it be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths in the courts of sin near him. And he is held fast in the courts of sin. And because of his great Thank you. Hopefully that'll be better. All right, so a very hard proverb. I hope in spite of the popping, you were able to listen to these words. It's a, it is not a touchy-feely proverb. And we have here, first of all, my son, and, and we get this idea of youth. And I just want us to never think that we are not sons or daughters. We are always young in the eyes of the Lord. We are always children, always being parented until we meet God face to face in heaven. And don't let these pronouns, pronouns get you. Uh, men can also be seductive and manipulative, and women can also be foolish. Okay, this is for all of us. We all have to be wary of the slick-talking stranger that is described in this passage. This passage is particularly and literally about adultery. Now, before you say this doesn't apply to me for various reasons, remember Jesus described adultery as, as equaling lust in your heart. When you are married, if you are engaging in pornography, if you are engaging in fantasy or emotional connections, it is very much the same thing as, as adultery in the big scheme of the why of this passage, and not just for you married people. Sexual sin carries with it the same uh, heaviness, whether you are married or whether you are single. And the why of this proverb applies to you all. There is a lot of ground given to sexual sin in the Proverbs. There is a lot of real estate given to sexual sin in the whole of God's word. And that is because it is an area where we are particularly vulnerable. And it is an area where the consequences can be particularly devastating. But I think here in Proverbs 5, there are lessons that go far beyond sexual sin. I believe the lessons of this chapter apply to much more than adultery. And I want to look this morning at, at really three component parts of this proverb that I think are warnings for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves. The first one is this, sin is seductive. So here we have this very specific warning about the seductiveness of sexual sin. So... Our sexuality runs deep. 
Our sexuality is tied to so many things inside of us, especially in our culture that has elevated our sexuality beyond anything that I believe God intended it to be. But tied to our sexuality, we find our value often. We, we find pleasure. We find security. We find identity. And because it is tied to so many things, there are just so many ways in the midst of all that that we can be pulled off the track of wisdom. And it goes far beyond the simple pleasure of sex. Most people that I counsel with that get involved in sexual immorality, um, they might think it's just because of the sex, but it's almost always about something much deeper. And here we are warned to be careful because sin is seductive. It is smooth. It lures us in with something that seems very sweet. I hear these kind of things. What could be so wrong with this? What could be so wrong if two people love each other? What could be so wrong? Does not, God wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to be happy. What's the big deal with it if we're both consenting to it? This is what will satisfy me. These smooth-talking lies and the smooth-talking seller of sexual sin always makes promises that it can never deliver on. I think most of us get this idea of seduction. We get this idea when we hear that word of being lured into something, something maybe that we didn't even know we wanted or something that we never had any intention of getting ourselves involved in. Seduction very clearly has sort of a sexual or maybe romantic connotation, but we can really be seduced into many things and many forms of sin and many forms of foolishness. I think about the, the frequency of promises of easy money, promises of great deals. You don't really even have to work for this. Promises of, of free, um, de interest-free debt. Okay, let me tell you, when it says no interest for one year, it's not a good deal. But we get lured into that. I am very easily seduced myself by Trader Joe's Frequent Flyer magazine. <laughs> I get that thing, I read it, and the next thing you know, I cannot live without Trader Joe's New Zealand organic cheddar cheese. I mean, it is, it is produced from the milk of cows that feed on the lush grasses and clover of New Zealand's dairy land. How can I refuse that? Seriously, I get a Trader Joe's magazine in the mail. I am often at Trader Joe's within the hour. But what we're talking about here is not being lured into wasting $3 on a chunk of cheddar cheese. We are talking about being seduced into sin. And we have to remember that seduction is the nature of sin. If, you know, we would not have to be challenged and warned against sin so much if sin ever represented itself honestly. If sin represented itself honestly, if sin promised us nothing, we wouldn't be enticed by it. The Bible characterizes sin in several ways. I think of, of Genesis that characterizes it as the serpent hissing out these lies that speak and appeal to our deep fleshly desire to be like God ourselves. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter describes Satan as a lion who's prowling around just waiting for somebody to pounce on and to devour both of those are sort of scary characterizations. If we saw a snake hissing at us, we would run. If we knew that there was a lion waiting, we would be super alert and careful. 
But I think here in Proverbs 5, we see the scariest characterization of sin. It lures us. It is intentional. It is syrupy. It is sweet. And it can often sound very right. One of um, the most impactful Proverbs to me, and I want you to turn there, turn a couple pages over to chapter nine, because I think chapter nine shows us why sin is so dangerous, why it is so slippery, why temptation or folly can have such an impact in our lives, and we don't even realize it's happening. I wanna read to you two parts of this proverb, Proverbs nine. The first few verses are a description of wisdom. It's what we're seeking in the Proverbs. Let's read verses one through six together. Wisdom has built her house, She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, whoever is not wise, let him turn here, in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread. Drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This powerful, beautiful description of how wisdom calls out to us. But now let's read the way of folly. So that was one through six. Let's jump down to verse 13. We have wisdom setting her house high on a hill, setting her table, calling out to the simple. Now let's read the way of folly in verse 13. The woman folly, sorry women, you you, you got wisdom, but you also get folly. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. A description of the call of wisdom, a description of the call of folly. What do you notice? What I hope you notice, and what struck me as so powerful years ago when I first noticed this, is that they sound exactly the same. They both set a table. They both set their ladies on the high places. They both call out to the simple. They both say, if you lack sense, come in here. The difference is that one leads to life and one leads to death. But I think that is why it is so easy for us to to get pulled into foolish behavior. Because we're looking at that. We're looking and all of a sudden we have somebody yelling something to us. Come in here. I think about how often we may be making a decision and all of a sudden there's an open door in front of us and what do we say? Hey, there's an open door. This must be what I'm supposed to do. Or maybe we're looking to make a decision and there's a hurdle or there's a block and we say, well, since there's a hurdle or a block, this clearly means this is not what I'm supposed to do. We totally just look at the circumstances. We're not seeking wisdom. And what happens if we just look at the circumstances, we may be walking into the door of folly because it presents itself exactly like wisdom. We have to be careful. 
When we do that, we could fall prey to folly's lure. We could be seduced into sin. But what we're talking about here are not decisions that don't matter. It's not an unwise business move. It's not a chunk of, you know, cheese that ends up at the end of the day just being cheddar. We're talking about sin, and sin is deadly. This is such a powerful verse in Proverbs 9. They do not know that the dead are there. But we also see the same thing in Proverbs 5, and that's our second point. We see that the end result of falling prey to the seductress of sin is death. Death is the end of sin. I'm so glad I got to return to the pulpit for this positive, uplifting topic. Thank you, Ryan. But you know what? I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to talk about this because it's true and we have to be real about it. Sin destroys. Now for those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, sin leads to an eternal destruction, an eternal death in hell, separated from God forever. But sin also destroys for the Christ follower. It disrupts. It doesn't break our relationship with God. It breaks our fellowship with God. It breaks our intimacy with God. It destroys people in our path, and it sucks the joy out of the life that God has for us here on this earth. When God shares his wisdom with us, and when we decide that we know better than he does what is good for us, because we have all these syrupy, sweet promises laid before us, When we decide, I am going to follow something other than what God says, we cannot help but also pull away from God. I think you all know that it is true that no one who is stuck or mired in sexual sin, but really anyone who is stuck or mired in any sin, someone who is stuck or mired in sin cannot honestly say that everything is good between them and God. They may say it, But it is not and it cannot be true. And I believe if you were able to dig deep, deep, deep in them, they would know it's not true too. When we choose folly over wisdom, when we say, God, I am choosing something other than what you say, what we are doing is we are choosing to worship a feeling. We are choosing to worship a relationship. We are choosing to worship some action over God. And that is simply idolatry. And God will not share priority in your life with an idol. Proverbs 5 so poignantly describes the end of a life that has chosen folly. I read this and I just felt this pain. Can you imagine anything worse than spending your last days on a bed of regret over the sinful choices that you had made in your life? We see this vivid picture of this in Proverbs 5. We see this path starting in about verse 7 where it says, or 8. It says, keep your way far from her. Don't go near her, lest, in verse 9, you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. And now I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. What this shows us, this powerful picture, it shows us what happens when we give ourselves sexually 
outside of marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, when we give that away, we have given strangers something precious. We've given away our life. And I think as I look and I think about my own kids and I think about the young people in this room, oh, that each young person in this room would let that reality sink in before you begin to explore your sexuality outside of marriage. But also what a picture of this, the possibility of that place of regret that we could find ourselves in, especially this one here, a deathbed regret when there is no time left to mend what has been broken. I'm not sure I can think of anything worse than that. The truth is there is always hope for redemption. There is always time for repentance as long as you have a breath left. But that doesn't mean that our sin does not do damage to our lives and to our relationships and to our families and mending that outcomes of sin takes time. And I love how Proverbs 5 does this. It doesn't just give us this penalty. It doesn't just say, if you sin, this is gonna happen to you. It doesn't just give the physical penalty of sin. It also shows the emotional toll of sin. It shows how sin makes us feel. God isn't here trying to scare or guilt you into obedience. He is gracious, graciously showing us the simple outcome of sin. I remember years ago, I was battling this pull into sin. The seductress was hitting me strongly and forcefully. And I was whining to my counselor at the time, why can't I just do it? Why can't I just follow my feelings? Why can't I? I had this belief that God was somehow forcing me into compliance. And my counselor told me, you can do whatever you want to do. No one is forcing you. It doesn't mean you won't have consequences, but you can do whatever you want to do. And God is that way with us. He is not going to force our obedience. He isn't trying to scare us into submission. He's saying you are free to follow the seductress, but just do it with full disclosure of what awaits you. He wants us to know the consequences, but we also see in Proverbs 5 that he wants us to know the way out. Number three, contentment is the antidote to the slippery speech of the seductress. At the end of the day, I truly believe this dissatisfaction with what we have will always lead us on a path towards sin. But the more we savor God, the more we delight in what we already have, the less compelling will be the lure of sexual sin. And not just sexual sin, as with any sin, if we can just detach ourselves and pull away from the seductiveness of the false promises that, are being, that, we, that we are being battered with, if we can step away from that and we can take a deep breath and, and look around us and just, just take in all that we already have, the slippery speech of the seductress loses its power over us. Contentment is a very interesting idea. I'm always very careful myself. Contentment is not the same thing as being complacent. Being complacent is ignoring when God is calling you to change something, when God is calling you to make a move or to take an action. Contentment is simply not looking beyond what you have to find your satisfaction. 
And this proverb encourages us to be content with what we have. That's what it means when it says, drink from your own cistern and your own flowing well. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe, although I wouldn't call her that. And don't call her what else Solomon likes to call in Song of Solomon. Don't tell your wife you're my graceful deer, deer, you're a lovely doe, and you have a hair like a flock of goats and teeth like freshly shorn sheep. But this is what he is saying here. It means something very beautiful. It means something to celebrate and to revel in. And then he says boldly, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated by her. That is rich, passionate language. And sometimes this comes very easy, but sometimes we have to cultivate that sort of attitude. We have to cultivate contentment. After lots of years, we may lose a little of our graceful doishness. Now, Stephanie, still very doe-like, but I am clearly not the mighty stag that I once was. But God is telling us here, he's saying, make a decision to delight in what you have. See it for the gift and the beauty that it is. Slippery, seductive speech fights contentment because it makes us think that sin is more valuable or more pleasurable or more satisfying than what we have in God and what we have in the gifts that he has given us. But just as sin fights against contentment, God challenges us to fight for contentment by seeking wisdom. Gaining wisdom requires action on our part. Salvation does not impart wisdom to us. We do not become wise just because we have a relationship with God. Salvation grants us the power to wisdom by giving us the Holy Spirit. But we are called to action. Proverbs 2 says, We are to seek wisdom like silver and search for it like hidden treasures. That may seem a little, that may be kind of beautiful, flowery, poetic language. But I thought about this. If you tell me that there is a hidden treasure inside my house, and if I believe you, I will not stop looking until I have found it. If we believe God, we will not stop seeking wisdom because what we have been promised, we will find. It goes on in Proverbs 2 to say, when we find it, listen to this, what happens. We will understand the fear of the Lord and we will find the knowledge of God. In Proverbs 2 and verse 7, it says, he will be a shield for us. Think of that. He will be a shield to protect us from the seductive lure of sin. When we search and find wisdom, says he will guard the paths of justice and watch over the way of his saints, which if you are in relationship with God, that is you. And then it says, when we find the wisdom that we search for, it says we will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. And it says this, for wisdom will come into our heart and knowledge will be pleasant to our soul. It's a picture of contentment. Knowledge will be pleasant to our soul Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. And all of those things, it says, will deliver us from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. And then when we are delivered, it says in verse 16, we will also be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Verse 20 of chapter two says, you will then walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. Read that on your own sometime and let that soak in. 
all the things you seek in, in your world. I think if we will sit there and go, what would it be like to be like that? We will discover that that existence sounds amazing and free and rich and safe and worth seeking and seeking and seeking until we find it. The reality is we have all been foolish. Foolishness is our nature. Some of you today I know are living in the mire as we talk about in, in specifically in, in uh, Proverbs 5, you're living in the mire of sexual sin and you feel hopelessly entrapped. I know many others of you are stuck in some other form of seductive sin. And you know as you sit there and you can't seem to get out, but you know that it is not delivering what it promised. And I want you to know before you leave this place that there is hope for restoration in Jesus. And maybe some of you, that's the first time thing. Maybe others of you, it's, it's, it's that act of pulling away from the sin has sucked you in. Pulling away from that sin and responding to the call of the woman wisdom. Leaving your simple ways so that you may live to walk in the way of insight. As long as we have breath, we have the opportunity to change our course. That doesn't mean that you walk away from the consequences of your sin. I have a small scar in my eyebrow. Um, I have a little eyebrow island over here as a result that I, you would never see because I, I'm into body, I'm into grooming, you know, so I take care of the little island. But I have a small scar in my eyebrow that reminds me of the time at age four when I unwisely failed to listen to my parents' instruction about jumping on the bed. Every time I see that little island, I remember that I should have listened to my parents. I have many scars from the damages of my sin too that I see that are still there, that are evident. But in the midst and surrounding my scars, there is also forgiveness. And there is freedom from guilt and shame. And God, no matter the consequences that our sin wreaks in our lives, no matter those consequences, God is always making all things new. And he can bring delight where there has been anger. He can bring freedom where there is bondage. He can bring trust where trust has been shattered. Hebrews 4.15 says that in Jesus, we do not have someone who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. It says we have someone who has been tempted as we have been tempted. We have someone who has been wooed by the seductress, yet never sinned. God sent Jesus as a man so that he would be able to get us and to understand our struggles, and he does, and it goes on to say in Hebrews 4.16 that we can approach his throne of grace with confidence for a well-timed help. He died for us not in spite of our sin and our struggles and our foolishness. He died for us because of those things so that we would have, through the same power that raised him from the dead, we would have the power to overcome. As we sang this morning, death has no claim on you anymore. He accepts you today in your totally foolish state no matter how embarrassed you are, no matter how stupid you feel, he accepts you and he welcomes you and invites you to begin to explore the amazing adventure that is found within the perfect boundaries of his wisdom. So how do we take Proverbs 5 and heed this warning practically? 
I think the first thing that we do in our lives in general is that we make an ongoing practice of seeking the wisdom of God first and foremost through his word, not through other people. You can get a lot of God from a lot of different things, but the way to understand his heart and wisdom is first and foremost through his word. We search for it like a hidden treasure and we don't stop searching until we find it. And what that does for us is it makes us on a constant um, uh, trajectory of sensitivity to the lies that make promises to us. It helps us be aware. It helps us remember always wisdom and folly are saying the same things to us. I need to seek wisdom in order to know the difference. It means that we line up every promise that is made to us Line up every decision that we are making, we line that up with the word of God. And we don't base our decisions on emotion or circumstances. And let me just tell you how many, I've been told so many times that, that people believe that, um, that God has, has um, opened the door for them to have an affair or to engage in other sexual sin. Let me tell you, an affair, any kind of sexual sin is never wisdom ever. It never will line up with God's word. The second way we practically put this uh, Proverbs 5 into practice is it means we never minimize the impact of sin. Sometimes I think it's so easy to do that, but we have to always think sin is never neutral. We remember that Satan's promises, they're designed to tempt tempt us at the, at the level of our deepest desires and they will never satisfy those desires but they will always lead to some form of death. I know a lot of men I, work, I talk to and deal with a lot of men who struggle with pornography. I know there are women who struggle with pornography. I think sometimes that if we, before we would engage in those things, before we click on that button on our computer, if we had the thought, I'm gonna click on a button but the dead are there. If we were so aware of that, it would change the impact. It doesn't mean the seductress is not gonna keep trying, but it would change that we cultivate. The third practical way to apply Proverbs 5 means that we cultivate contentment. We don't just expect to be content because remember the seductress is constantly trying to show you there's something better out there. We have to cultivate it. Maybe for some of you that means you have to change the people who you hang out with. Maybe for some of you or a lot of you it means that you cut out social media. It may mean that you quit reading Architectural Digest. That one's for me. I never read Architectural Digest and am more content than I was when I started. It means that we look at what we have and we intentionally thank God for it, even if we don't feel it at that moment. But we intentionally thank God for it and we intentionally decide to delight in it. And then in all of this, number four, it means we don't live in isolation. We need those friends who are also seeking the wisdom of God, who are also searching for it like hidden treasure. We need them because those are the people who often will be the ones who call us out who tell us what you are listening to is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you are pursuing a path and you feel the need to keep it a secret from your Christian brothers or sisters, that should be a warning to you. God has designed us to do this together. So, 
My question for you this morning is, will you see and seek wisdom for what it is? Something of immense value. Will you trust God that he loves you greatly and that what he calls us to is best for us, that it's best for you. What he's telling you to do and how to live is in your best interest and in his wisdom, you will find your greatest joy. Will you see that all you have in Christ right now, just Christ, is more valuable than all that slippery, syrupy sin promises you? Will you see him as the true final object of your blessing and your delight and your intoxication? Will you savor him today? Will you do like it says in Psalm 34, 8, will you taste and see that the Lord is good? If your answer is yes, God is always, uh, he's gracious to, to lay out the consequences of sin, but he's also gracious to lay out the promise of wisdom. Listen to this from from Proverbs 3, 13 through 18. This is your promise. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is, the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. That sounds pretty good to me. Let's pray.